Agent 007 blasts into orbit in this action-packed adventure that takes him to Venice, Rio de Janeiro, and outer space. When Bond investigates the hijacking of an American space shuttle, he and the beautiful CIA agent Holly Goodhead are soon locked in a life-or-death struggle against Hugo Drax, a power-mad industrialist whose horrific scheme may destroy all human life on Earth. Making its premiere in London and opening in the UK on the 26th of June 1979 and opening in the USA a few days later on the 29th, Moonraker is the 11th James Bond film and costs $34 million to make, bringing in $202.7 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Roger Moore, directed by Lewis Gilbert, the vital statistics are Conquest 3, Martinis 1, Kills 14, Bond James Bonds 1. Back in 1979, Variety said, Christopher Wood's script takes the characters exactly where they always go in James Bond pick, and the only question is whether the stunts and the gadgets will live up to expectations. They do. The visual effects, stunt work, and other technical contributions all work together expertly to make the most preposterous notions believable. Science fact. (laughs) So, (laughs) with that, to discuss Moonraker this week, I would like to introduce Bill, Calvin, and Joe. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Uh, Hi, I'm Bill Koenig uh, with the uh, blog The Spy Command, and uh, yet another movie I saw in first run, and uh, I was officially an adult at the age of 21. Hmm. I'm quite jealous of you, Bill. Uh, This is Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel where I review and discuss all things Bond, films, books, games, all that stuff, and very happy to be here to talk about Moonraker today. And I am Joseph Darlington, and rumors of my demise have been wildly exaggerated. <laughs> uh, being James Bond, you can find it on YouTube and the podcast thing. And I actually just missed seeing this one in the theater. I can specifically remember uh, in the fourth uh, grade, other kids in my class talking about this movie and not having any idea what they were talking about, but being jealous that I didn't see it. So uh, it took me many, many years before I finally got caught up. But uh, so I'm happy to talk about this one. So we open with the one with, uh, which is, what is the motif you could hang your hat on for this film? What would you stick on the poster? If you close your eyes, what's the one thing you see or hear when you think about Moonraker? You would describe this film to the casual moviegoer as the one with... Bond goes to outer space. I was going to say, we're all tripping over ourselves to be yeah. the one to come out. I mean, they they flirted with the idea and you only live twice. And before he, you know, got caught and had to come down. But like, you know, no restraint this time. He's going. <laughs> what did everybody have as their backup options on this one? <laughs> you go, Joe. Uh, I will say this is the one with Jaws, and I know it's kind of a weird one because this is his second film. Probably, I I think at this point, it's the first time they brought back a villain or henchman for another film. Uh, and even though I I kind of feel like you know, the Spy Who Loved Me was really his his introduction. He's terrific in it. This one, it's it, it. This is where it sort of becomes you know the um the Coyote and the Roadrunner. And it very much becomes the cat and mouse between James Bond and Jaws, despite the fact that Jaws is only the henchman. Um, he really shines in this one. Um, so I'll go with that. 
th- those are my two. <laughs> so I, I, I'm going to have to hit the nuclear option and uh, go. This is the one with no braces. There are no braces ah. in this film, other than <laughs> other than the ones that are keeping up Jaws's trousers. Uh, yes, I'm controversial. Referring, I, I'm referring, of course, to Jaws's girlfriend Dolly, who is there's this whole uh, Mandela effect thing about people misremember that the character actually had braces in a scene and she did in fact not and there's a lot of evidence including the the actress saying that she never wore such things um but yes it's 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 a yeah it, it's a interesting sort of factoid about this thing about how it's uh, taken on a bit of a life of its own afterwards so bill as somebody who saw it first run can you confirm or deny calvin's claim <laughs> <laughs> I have to confirm it. I, you know, it's, I put it in my DVD. It's, you know, the braces aren't there. Um, I think the fact that she smiled so widely, I think that might encourage people to think she had braces, you know, the way she smiled at Jaws. And then he smiles back with his, you know, Jaws. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't dispute it. I got to admit, I, I, I'm a bit of a dick with this. I have a lot of fun with people on social media about this, just pulling their legs. Like, <laughs> she never did, but it's so easy to wind people up on this. Yeah. So mm. easy. I, I can remember going back years and years, uh, uh, being at a friend's house, and my friend's dad was had a big VHS collection, and Moonraker happened to be one. So I can remember, you know, as ba- as, as far back as VHS, watching this film. And as that scene was coming up, my friend's mom is watching and the, the music starts to build and she's going, watch this, watch this. She's going to have braces. She's going to have braces. And, and, <laughs> and sure enough, she smiles and there's no braces. So I, I, I think everyone just sort of has just imp- implanted that idea because it was such an obvious joke. How did they possibly miss that one? So I think I think a lot of people, that's why they sort of just have just yeah. unconsciously added that in their minds. By the way. This movie has one of the weirdest teaser trailers. Um, it's on YouTube, but it's very grainy. It's like, you know, it's obviously a copy from a <laughs> deteriorating mm-hmm. film copy. But I, in the fall of 1978, I was with my future wife. And we we're watching this. And at the beginning, it's like, what is this about? Because they're making jokes. And then you see... Um, Corinne getting chewed on by the dogs and they're making jokes like what is going on here and then it turns out it's a James Bond trailer mm-hmm. and then you end up going into the Venice sequence uh, with the guy coming popping out of the coffin throwing knives at Bond and Bond throwing the knife back at him and getting him in the heart and all that stuff and uh, my future wife leaned over to me and says we're going to see this movie um <laughs> she was very impressed and it's like whoa and then of course the later trailers were even more impressive and we ended up going to see the movie twice so and i saw it three more times beyond that <laughs> fantastic so the bond cocktail these are the formula that a lot of tabloid journalists always throw together or you know itv clip shows um we've got the tease of the titles the plot the women the villains allies bond himself action locations dialogue and style is there an ingredient of the bond cocktail that you feel is somehow particularly unique or important to this film and why and it could be a positive or a negative 
Calvin, um, the honorary Moonraker fan, you can go first. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually going to. Um, there's so so much that I love about this film, uh, but the teaser, the pre-credit sequence, is just phenomenal. And I think even people who don't like Moonraker love that sequence. The whole falling out of the plane without a parachute thing. The the fact that it's actually filmed with like there's real stunt people and real camera people like falling through the air filming this is just absolutely remarkable. Um I guess nowadays with like Tom Cruise and a lot of the stuff that he does in Mission Impossible is comparable in a way to to this. Um but I I love this because this is just that era of Bond opening time where they just do the most crazy stunts imaginable um and and i absolutely love it i think it's a cracking opening to the film yes you know you can see that in the occasional shot someone's wearing goggles and they've you know put parachutes on under their jackets i don't care because i think just the fact that this exists that they could actually film it coordinate it and do all those many jumps it's just it's a phenomenal opening but probably uh, one of my favorite pre-credit sequences if not my absolute favorite and back in the day um the cameras were really bloody heavy so mm. well, um the danger <laughs> the danger was they could snap their neck break their neck on these things um mm, right whereas because, tom cruise has the benefit of using digital cameras that weigh nothing mm, uh, right and yeah. um and they found uh i think michael g wilson found a plastic uh panavision lens at a mm-hmm. shop in paris or whatever it was and that made that that whole pre-credit stunt possible. Mm. And they did something to the parachutes as well for the camera people, so that it, I think they put a little bit of light, like lightly tightened, lightly lightly fitted rope. That's what I was looking for. God, um, around the parachute, so that when it was deployed, it would open up a little bit slower, so it would lessen the the jolt that they would feel like as it, you know. Um, opens out, which is just incredible. I, I, yeah, really awesome stuff. Can I go? Yeah, um, please. I'm going to piggyback off Calvin. Um, I'm going to say special effects in general because Eon had interviewed a number of uh, special effects companies. Um, I suspect Industrial Light and Magic was one. They, they were. On the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and Too they expensive. Wanted they wanted too much money uh, for Eon's taste, so they showed them the door. Okay, fellas, what are we going to do now? And they did it uh, thanks to Derek Meddings. Yeah, and he his walks crew. in with his salt shaker from the canteen. Exactly. <laughs> uh, with uh, miniatures. I mean, one of the more impressive things, it's, it's kind of a mild thing now, but like when Corinne is uh, flying Bond around the uh, Drax complex, you know, there's this factory building and it's a miniature. And it's like, okay. Yeah, you can tell it now, but like first couple times I saw it, I couldn't tell. And then like, you know, when you're seeing for the third or fourth time, oh, okay, that's a miniature. But, you know, but, you know, watching it the first time and again, the rocket launches. And remember, this movie was nominated for special effects. Now it was up against uh, Alien, so they didn't have much chance of winning. But I remember reading a feature story about Derek Meddings at some point. This is probably in the 80s. Where he basically said, listen, we were honored just to be nominated. And, you know, I mean, they really did with practical effects and miniatures and all that. In an old school way, they accomplished a lot in special mm-hmm. effects. So I, I give him credit for that. Yeah. Um, the spiritual successor to this movie to me in that department is Moon from 2009. Because that was all practical too. 
mm. all of the visual effects on Moon with um, it was all model work done at Pinewood mm. using traditional techniques with old school guys um, taking leaves out of the book of what Meddings did with Moonraker. Um, you know, down to the particulates and and all the other stuff they did to make it look realistic at scale. Um, and I challenge anybody to see that space shuttle launch from Moonraker and um, you know where it leaves the orbit. Um, and I think modern audiences would think that's some kind of. What, what, how did they do that? They didn't have CGI, mm. Mm. but it looks super realistic, and it's just you know twelve scale model and some salt. Mm. Well, and also they wound back the camera, and they had to do yeah. It. I, I forgot the number of times. It was a huge number of times. And like if they had messed it up on any one, they would have had to start all over. And But they didn't, and it got through, and it, it's great. I mean, it's still great today. Mm. But considering like other films in the series suffer from bad visual effects sometimes, like Diamonds, yeah, it's got a lot of sketchy effects and things like that. Um, this is the film that would have been made or would have been broken by bad special effects, right? Hmm. And they pulled out the best to think of the series, the visual hmm. effects work. Hmm. So yeah. it all hinged I, on that. And to, to to go away from the safe hands of ILM and not pay them the money and just try and do it in-house, I mean, that was a bold choice. Highly hmm. risky. Hmm. I, I'll well, definitely and, agree and, with that. And and by the way, just, to, just before it gets too far behind, if you haven't seen that film, Moon, I definitely recommend it. It's a great, great movie. Yeah. Hmm. And I was about to say, when uh, Drax's uh, space station uh, disintegrates, I mean, they, they, they closed off the stage and, like, shot at it with <laughs> shotguns. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's how they were inventive uh, when doing the visual effects. All right. Uh, Joe, what's your ingredient? Uh, I'm going to pick on it a little bit, and not for, you know, things you probably typically associated with uh, picking on Moonraker. Um, the, the, the leading ladies in this film, I kind of feel like after I've watched it many years, I've started to notice, you know, boy, the acting on the most of the women in this film, for some reasons is really kind of bad. It's like <laughs> not very good. Um, I, I kind of feel like all of them, you know, uh, Holly Goodhead, Corinne Dufour, and even Manuela, I sort of feel like all of them have really bad line readings in this, and or at least they, they at least all have a few that always sort of jump out at me and go, "Boy, that really came off really strange." You know, when Doctor Goodhead, um, when, when Bond is in the centrifuge thing and he and he shoots the thing and and it slows down and he's staggering out and she says, "Oh, something must have happened with the controls," and I I was gonna go. Yeah. <laughs> You, you couldn't have done that again, taking a second take on that one. Um, and there's a couple in here that are just sort of weird. Um, when, whenever, when, when Bond holds the thing up to Corinne and he says, oh, look, a heart of gold. She goes, 18 carat. And, but it's, I, don't know, I don't know if this was like a dub where the, the, right. it seems like the word is not lining up with her mouth or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's just always kind of weird. And like, there's just a couple moments in this. And again, after seeing it enough times, it started to become a theme that I started to notice. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Joe, can I add one more? Um, Please. In the Venice sequence, uh, Bond notices uh, Holly walking and he follows, follows her for a while. 
And then he comes up and says, 14th century. And then she's supposedly surprised. And yes. like, you know, but like, boy, that is like, I think that was the wrong take to print. <laughs> just, right, maybe right. it was the end of the day and they had to get it out. It, it just, it really comes across as really fakey. I, it's, it's, uh, I, I still cringe thinking about it. <laughs> right. Yes. It's a, and there's a few of those in this. Yeah. So, um, could, can you believe that Carol Bouquet was considered for Holly Goodhead prior to Lois Charles getting the role? Uh, obviously, mm. she'd get it in Furies only, but thirty-year um, mm. age gap. Mm. Carol Bouquet and Roger Moore, mm-hmm. more than Stacey Sutton and Tanya Roberts. She always takes the shit for that one, but actually, Carol Bouquet is the biggest age gap. But she was mm. up for playing Holly Goodhead, um, mm. as was um, Dutch actress. Um, Sylvia Christel, who was in the Emmanuel movies. Oh. Um, but Christopher Wood apparently shot that one down. Mm. Christopher Wood, the, yeah. the screenwriter, he had that kind of yes. sway. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm. He didn't have a lot of good things to say about it, apparently. Oh. Mm. Would have been very different with Carol Bouquet, <laughs> Moonraker. <laughs> yeah, very. Good shout, Joe. I've always had that. Weird thing about this film, the the women I never clicked with me in this film either. They really have with me. Well, well, uh, Doctor Goodhead, actually, I should say, uh, I'm I'm a big fan of hers. I do agree, though, that I th- I blame some of the looping, some of the ADR stuff for her because it is very flat. Hang on, James. Mm. Like that that one always <laughs> is the one that sticks out to me. But yeah. I, I do like her. Like I like the actress, and I I think. Her and you know Roger together look good. I think they've got good chemistry. Yeah, I think he brings out some of the yeah some of her best bits. That's probably the hardest work he had in this film. (laughs) (laughs) Shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Underappreciated elements. Um, What thing, big or very very small, would you like to bring to people's attention next time they watch Moonraker? Uh, I'd like to bring up something. Um, this is more of a comparison than it is watching the film per se, but uh, if you've never seen Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die, or as I call it, Moonraker 66, um, <laughs> it might be worth a comparison. It's kind of hard to find. Last time I looked, it was on Moonraker. It had German titles, but an English soundtrack. But there are so, you know, it's set in, in Brazil. And you see the uh, the falls, and actually they use the falls to much greater effect than Moonraker does, because you see the actual falls. It's using the title sequence, and there are like a few scenes that like really match up to Moonraker. Now I'm not going to say that Moonraker copied <laughs> "Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die," but why there? It's there are like a lot of similarities because you've got. In the earlier film, you've got an American man paired up with a British woman, and whereupon in Moonraker, you have a British man paired up with an American woman. And, but you even have some of the same product placement things with um, like a fake billboard for Boulevard watches, whereupon in Moonraker, mm. they go crazy because you got Marlboro, you got British Airways, and 7-Up, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it's it's really interesting. It's just watching them back to back is uh, interesting. I'll leave it at that. Joe, do you want to go? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah i I think the 
the big underappreciated thing in this film for sure is the locations. I think this film really has it head and shoulders over a lot of them just in terms of the locations. I think if nothing else, like if, the, if there's not much else in the film that you really do gravitate towards, you have to really enjoy where they are. I mean, they're, they're all over. I, I feel like this is really one of the bigger globetrotter films of yeah. the series where they're just sort of all over the place at really, really stunning. I mean, the, you know, they do France, they do Venice, they do Rio. I, I've always found it kind of weird. I, maybe I should have saved this one for my trivia. Uh, I've always found it so weird that they go to this magnificent chateau in France and for some reason they wanna they wanna play it off as if this is California. <laughs> where where every other film in the world is filming in California and, and desperately trying to pretend they're some somewhere else. So <laughs> maybe California was just sort of hip around this time in the seventies, so okay. So maybe that was the thinking behind it. But yeah, I, I find that kind of fascinating. But anyway, I mean again, Rio, Venice, um, uh, then they go to Argentina for the for the, uh, the for the boat chase. I mean, and the climax. You really can't beat it as far as locations go. Mm. I think for mine, I, I don't know if this is an, an underappreciated element because uh, I'm going to talk about Roger as Bond in this one. Um, I think this is him at the peak of his powers as Bond, and I think that when it comes to citing his best Bond performance, I think. Uh, the the you know the consensus would normally be towards the spy who loved me for your eyes only potentially even octopusy I I know some people um, yeah. including myself really rate him in that one I think here he's like phenomenally good and I think it's you know coming back for the spy who loved me which was such a big success everyone really loved it and he finally felt confident and at ease in that film I think here he's just completely this is just complete unfiltered Roger Bond whereas in the ones that come after this. There, there is an attempt, certainly in Fiore's Only an Octopussy, to try and stick, you know, rein it in a little bit, get back to Fleming. Um, whereas this one, he's just having an absolute blast, and I think that really helps my enjoyment of the film. And, and I think it, he delivers the quips like better. I think some of the dialogue in here is really great, similar to Diamonds Are Forever. I think some really funny dialogue in here. Um, and and he's just uh, uh, yeah, absolutely brilliant. This is my favorite Roger Bond performance. Mm. Cool. Um, particularly the standout scene for me is the the um, uh, the G four simulator where mm. he, he comes out and he looks absolutely wrecked and mm. um, it's very convincing that whole mm. sequence. And yeah, I don't think many people, casual fans, would um, really put that as a Roger scene. They, well, you know, because it doesn't it, kind of fit in with his um, invincible mm. version of James Bond, does it? Mm. And also, it, that gets back to the idea of practical effects, because when he's in the centrifuge just before he deactivates it, um, he apparently was like holding a windblower yeah. <laughs> off mm -hmm. camera. And it's like, I would, because I remember watching it on the first run, like, how are they doing that? Like, he's, he's really looking in really tough shape. When that all that wind's going through his face and his facial muscles are, you know, blowing around, and it's like, yeah, he just held something <laughs> that the camera you couldn't see. Yeah. But again, practical effects. So I've got a couple of little very odd ones um, to throw in, <clears throat> which is Holly in a, in a hotel room when it's dark reaches very slowly for the light switch, <laughs> and out of nowhere, oh, yes, like, yes, yes. I was just like, ah, like. 
completely unnecessary jump scare for no reason whatsoever. It's like, how did that even make it in the film? Um, <laughs> well, well, if I can, you know, that film I mentioned, the 66 film, there is an almost identical scene in it where Mike Connors is going into uh, Dorothy Provine's hotel room, sneaking around. Um, you don't have that particular jump cut, but uh, it, but the scene plays out almost the same way that the Moonraker scene plays out. It's, it's very weird. Yeah. It's just one of those little moments that I absolutely adore for absolutely no logical reason whatsoever. <laughs> it's it, like it really, Kai, I, Kai I, Cairo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really is just one of those things where you're like, why is this in here? Like, I, like just on the day of, they're like, what, what can we do that would be different yeah, here? Oh, yeah, let's, let's do, do another it. setup. Right, right. <laughs> Okay, so trivia. Um, would you like to share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting? Uh, I'll I'll go. Um, I find it quite interesting. I've re- I recommend um, people read the novelization of this film uh, mm. by Christopher Wood, James Bond mm. and Moonraker. Um, it's really good, similar to Christopher Wood's other novelization for The Spy Who Loved Me. I think they really like surprisingly like capture a lot of that Fleming. Um, style, which is um, kind of surprising, really, when you think of them as being some of the more light-hearted, sort of more jovial Bond films. But right. uh, I find it really interesting that the character of Corrine, um, Drax's personal pilot, um, is a French lady in the film. In the novelization, she is Trudy, and she's kind of this blonde sort of cheerleader American yep. bimbo type. Um, and they had to change it, I'm assuming, because of uh, the French casting. Yes, uh, they, they wouldn't be able to film in France or get certain tax breaks if they didn't have a French actress in there. But right. I, I, I find that really interesting because to Joe's point earlier on about how you know they're filming at this beautiful chateau and they're pretending it's in America, you kind of forget that this film is even set in America because it you right. know mm. it's a French lady picking him up. They're quite clearly in a French location at this chateau. Whereas well, if they had, I think if they had sort of. Um, well, lent into some of the Americana sort of stuff and had that Trudy character in there, yeah. this sort of uh, bimboy American um, type. I think that, w- that would have helped that, and I think it would have given it a bit more of a surreal edge. Um, yeah, when, when that character was Trudy, <clears throat> they were looking at Kim Basinger for that role. Right, okay, yep, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and also the only actual American shot is at LAX, because you can see the control tower in the mm. back- background, but... Uh, you know, obviously done by some kind of second or even third unit. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> obviously Roger Moore wasn't going to do that because they didn't need him. Mm. Um, can I go? I just would like to mention the original draft for this uh, uh, movie, the script, because it is so awesome. It, it, it's a great read because, oh, they were going to have, uh, they're going to put in the jetpack and the Venice boat chase sequence they had keel hauling they had his and her mini jets it's like good grief like you know a friend of mine who supplied me the copy said yeah if they'd done this movie they'd still be filming it um but um uh, you know so as i guess what i'm trying to say is as big as this film is they were considering make it even bigger right and 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 Eon never wants to let good ideas go to waste, right? No, because <laughs> his and her, you know, because 
let's see, Holly's mini jet gets shot down, but Bond gets away, but he like tilts his uh, mini jet at a uh, 90 degree angle to get through like this narrow uh, pass between two cliffs. And of course that got put into uh, Octopussy and the key hauling got put into uh, For Your Eyes Only and et cetera, et cetera. And to some degree, died on the day with the his and hers little jet things. Yeah, mm. yeah. Good point. Um, I was, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I was kind of struggling for this part because I, I, when we first started, I, I made a big old note and I just wrote down no braces, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> to which I should have realized that would have been like we would, we would have talked about that way early on. Uh, <laughs> then I had the the French chateau passing as California, and then when we talked about that, then I brought that up like a dummy. Um, then I kind of was like, oh boy, now I'm really struggling because I don't know if I have anything else. Um, but I, I did kind of remember this was uh, Bernard Lee's final film. So right. mm. maybe I'll go with that one. And, and I kind of really like it as his final film because I, I feel like, you know, again, for a character that was sort of well known as being kind of the, the I mean, he, very much the character from the book, kind of gruff, kind of, you know, doesn't suffer fools well. And, um, you know, he's kind of barking at 007 a lot. Um, Honor Majesty is probably the best the best um, scene for that. Um, here he's really softened up and he really has built a relationship with James Bond that is very much based on trust. And if, if Bond says something, you know, we, yeah. we know that we can, we, we, I, I, I trust his instincts and we let him do his thing. Um, mm. so yeah, I, I feel like as, as far as, um, I, I, I think Q's final scene probably outdoes this, but still as far as, as far as a good, a good note to go out on for him, I think, I think it's pretty well done here. Good call. Um, well, in particular, when uh, in Venice, when you know Drax yeah. has seemingly pulled the wool over everybody, but yeah. Bond still has that little sample of the nerve, uh, not gas, but you know the, the, mm-hmm. the deadly chemical, and gives it to uh, M and says, you know, you know, tell Q to be really careful. It is lethal. And uh, oh, what is it? He says. I have a hankering to go to Rio. I can remember you mentioning it. <laughs> and you know, that's a great scene. Yeah. Really and well really done. Yeah. yeah. And you compare that to the, the one in quantum where all of a sudden, Oh, he's my agent. I believe him after <laughs> sending out the Americans to chase him down a few minutes earlier. It's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> done properly here. Um, exactly. My little piece of trivia was, <clears throat> and after all the dozens of times I've seen this, I never picked up on this. The long shot of the cable cars when Bond and Holly zip line down the cable car. Mm. The long shot of that was actually model, and Bond and Holly was an action man and a Barbie. <laughs> Brilliant. And you can't tell by looking at it. <laughs> Brilliant well, and also, model work. And also earlier with on top of the cable car, you had a uh, regular size stuntman. I think it was Martin Grace doubling Jaws. And a short stuntman, I think it was uh, Richard Graydon, doubling yeah. Bond. Uh, again, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter their actual heights. It's just, you know, can you replicate, you know, the the relative difference in height? Right. And again, watching it the first couple times, I couldn't tell. Um, okay. So final verdicts. I think we're going to be maybe all over the map on this one. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you, is Moonraker top tier, middle tier, or bottom tier Bond? 
and by bottom tier, we don't mean it's a bad film. We just mean it. You maybe watch it the least. Um, so top, middle, or bottom personal preferences. Um, who wants to go first? Can I try? Okay, Bill. I'll put it at the top of the bottom tier, but again, a big but. Um, I would say it is like the least pretentious James Bond film ever. And there are times I'm in the mood to watch something like that. And yes, I'm aware of its flaws. And, but, you know, there are some Bond fans who've never forgiven it. Like, yeah, I forgive it. <laughs> like, I'll watch it. <laughs> Again, when I'm in the mood, I'll watch it. I'll, I'll go second because I want, I definitely want Calvin to, to be the pitch hitter on this one and, and <laughs> go last. Um, I, 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 I feel like I'm echoing very much the comments I made when we talked about diamonds and I kind of felt like, you know, I, I, I said it with the caveat, there is no such thing as a bad bond film. And I love them for all the, all, all this and that. And Moonraker probably falls in a very similar category, but, but again, underscoring the fact that, you know, that, that it sounds like a big old disclaimer, but, but truthfully, there's they always they always deliver and they always throw everything plus the kitchen sink and i think this is probably one of the best examples of that um one of my other trivias i almost mentioned was that this was for for quite a while held the record for the yes. the um the biggest box office for a, a long it had a long rec run of yeah. that record um until, until golden i think yeah um so yeah, I mean it, it is spectacular, and incidentally, I'll I'll kind of end off on this note too. I, you guys, I don't know if you've heard this, but there was um, Martin Scorsese recently, maybe in the last year or two, came out basically criticizing a lot of the Marvel movies, and he was basically making a complaint that it's not it's not cinema. You know, it, it might be entertainment uh, in the way that a theme park is entertainment, but it's certainly not cinema. And while of course I think he's got some excellent points. I kind of chew up the, the the entertainment that Marvel's doing, um, and it kind of reminded me there was a, there's another channel called Red Letter Media. I don't know if you guys have ever uh, <laughs> yeah. listened to these guys. Yeah, great stuff. Um, big Star Trek fans over there, and and one of the remarks that he made one time talking about Star Trek is like if 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 you looked at it on um, on a long line, a graph where on one end you've got classical music and on the other end you've got rock and roll there are a lot of star treks that fall fairly close to you know one is like you know star trek the motion picture maybe is like classical you know can be compared to classical music whereas like the 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 newer star trek um that's over in rock and roll both are good but in different ways um and I kind of find that, you know, as I if I had to sort of do something similar with James Bond, I would say, you know, yeah, the tough and gritty stuff on one end, you know, the real espionage stuff that I, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, I love these. You know, they're, they're they might exist on the on one end. But on the other end, I kind of feel like are the ones that are fun, that are kind of kitschy. And I sort of feel like this one certainly falls squarely into that where, again, it, it's it's fun in a different way as the other ones but still a lot of fun at the same time. So um, I'll leave it at that. Definitely not a, not a higher tier for me. Certainly one of the lower lowers, but, but again, with the caveat that it, it is still a lot of fun and I'll watch it any day of the week. Mm, awesome. it, it, 
Yeah, no, no, I, I think we're all echoing similar sentiments here, though I will be putting this in top tier for me, and I have no <laughs> doubt that nostalgia is a huge part of that. This was the first Bond film I ever saw, so it's the one that kind of got me into it. How could I not have um, an awful lot of um, nostalgia for it? But uh, I, I just have such a great time watching it. It's one of those films that I can put this on, anytime and just relax and be entertained for a couple of hours which is just really nice to have that it is just a cozy kind of kind of warm hug of a film for me these days and i definitely went through a phase where i was kind of like oh, i don't know like it's it's always been in the top half of bond films but i definitely went through a phase where okay i mean i i appreciate that it isn't great cinema or whatever you know that kind of it's not going to win any awards or it, it's not saying something new or meaningful about the human condition but it is fantastic entertainment and i i just have a blast every time i watch it seeing it on the big screen um it, which i've done a couple of times now is also something of a revelation like we've already uh praise some of the special effects but mm. like on a big screen it's just it's something else it's like really really impressive um and as bill touched on um earlier on about how some of the special effect shots were achieved where they were like literally like running the same bit of like film through the camera multiple times and kind of building up the special effects that way which is part of the reason why it looks so good now because it wasn't you know done with opticals and uh, uh you know that kind of thing green screen and whatnot it was all kind of done in camera which just makes it look extra crisp and pristine uh, mm -hmm. on the big screen so um yeah this is this is top tier for me unironically <laughs> i genuinely love this film well if i can piggyback on what calvin said there were two u.s outlets when they did reviews on the first run one was the new york times and the other was time magazine and they were big deals at the time maybe not so much now but uh Vincent Canby of the New York Times said it was one of the best James Bond movies. I think he may have said it was the best since Goldfinger. Mm -hmm. I forget, but I remember reading it, you know, at the time it came out. He was a big enthusiast. And the other was Frank Rich, who was the uh, film critic for Time. And he later wrote for the uh, New York Times and currently writes for New York Magazine. And he likened, uh, Albert R. Broccoli to like a Jewish mother, like putting out all the goodies for the family, for the <laughs> family feast. Like there's something for everybody. It's like, yeah, this is a great movie. <laughs> and I mean, they both loved it. And it's very funny if you read those reviews and compare them to the reaction of some Bond fans. <laughs> it's it's, it's <laughs> right. really a big disconnect. Yeah. So if you listen to this uh, contemporously, um, Moonraker is back on the big screen in the UK this week. And um, if ever there was a Bond movie to go and see on the big screen, this has got to be it, right? Mm. Um, yes. For the, and for the in scale. Fact, I, I just thought of one other thing. It was like before the big space battle when like the US astronauts are leaving the shuttle and Drax's astronauts are going out to meet them, there's this one profile shot of an American astronaut and it's like, I know it's not him, but boy, it looks like the actor Robert Culp to me. Like every time I see it, like, I know it's not Robert Culp, but boy, like he had a doppelganger working in, in the UK at the time or, or, or France, whatever, wherever they filmed that. But uh, it's, it's so weird. Just, it's, that's just an odd observation on uh -huh. my part. Sorry. And 40 years later, the US now has a Space Force. Mm. Right. That's true. 
Yeah, just look right. out. Yeah. If there's a real life Hugo Drax coming, uh, they've got it. They've got it sorted now. Well, depend, Elon depends. Depends who you ask. You. He's, he's, yeah, I, swear, I was just going to say, depends who you ask. He might be buying Twitter. So hey. <laughs> And a space for us? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, thanks very much. And join us next week where we will be crashing back down to Earth with Fioras only. Bye for now. See ya.